This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I think when you decide to bring in five kids at that point, you realize, okay, this is so much bigger than us. You know, we've just watched our community step in in ways that blew our minds. I remember even the first week of our decision, someone like called and said, you know, if you'll just meet us over at a certain street, we've bought a 12-passenger van for you. All you have to do is sign the paperwork. From Christianity Today, you're listening to Adopting Hope, a podcast about adoptive, foster, and spiritual mothering. I'm Joyce Koo Dowerbull. And I'm Sasha Parker. We're both moms, and we're both adoptive moms. And on each episode of our show, you'll hear from a mom and sometimes a dad about their journey in adoption and foster care. Our hope is that this podcast provides hope and encouragement as you hear these stories. Whether you're an adoptive, foster, or spiritual mother yourself— an adoptee, or someone who just wants to encourage and love adoptive and foster parents. These stories are all windows into the gospel, the story of a God who adopts us and loves us with a redeeming love, and whose love empowers and compels us to extend that love through the unique joys and challenges that come from adoption and foster care. Thanks for tuning in. We pray this encourages you as you listen. Andy and Martha Cook are dear friends of mine. They're kind of like your family, Sasha. They have 10 children, three biological and seven adopted. They've adopted both domestically and internationally as well. I first got to know Andy as the president and CEO of Promise 686, a Christian ministry which has partnered with a network of 600 churches to help vulnerable children. They've developed an amazing model called Family Advocacy Ministry, FAMS, that recruits and equips families to care for foster, adoptive, and at-risk kids. I've served on the board of Promise for many years. I love the organization and love the cooks. We are so excited to have Andy and Martha Cook, who are personal friends of mine. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. We're so glad to be here. Yes, we are. Um, And we would love to just learn more about your family. Yeah. So tell us about your family, where they're at right now, their ages. Sure. We have 10 kids total. Our oldest is 22 and youngest is six. So we have our oldest living up in Michigan, working. And then our next one, Carmen, just started her freshman year at college. And then we have five high school boys. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, we've got a daughter who's in seventh grade and then two first graders, both boys. Seven boys (laughs) and three girls. When you and Andy, even when you were first married, did you ever picture having a family of 10 kids? Martha has two siblings. I've got three siblings. I don't think we ever thought about having a large family. It just never never crossed our minds. But we did have very stable families. Mm. And I there was this idea grained in us or that we kind of was brought out through our youth where we we knew by virtue of the gift of the stability, the love of 
parents that there, there was something to build upon there. Uh, I know that, that's probably a little vague, but I, I think there was something in us that said, man, this, this family thing we've got going is something we want to share. And I don't think we had any idea what that looked like. Uh, in our early marriage, we were involved as volunteer young life leaders. We were involved as youth leaders in our local church, a lot with student ministry, children, uh, vulnerable kids. And so it was, it was brewing. But the only moment I can really recall where we actually said, what if we had a big family, was on a trip up to Quebec City. We were going to seminary outside of, of Boston. And so we drove up to Quebec. We were on the Plains of Abraham, and this person walked by pushing this, like, I don't know, limo-style stroller, like like a bus, but a stroller. And we sort of remarked, oh, my gosh, look at that. And, and there was a conversation, gosh, what if we had a really big family? Mm-hmm. None of it was ever mentioned, but mm-hmm. little did we know. Did you think about not just having biological kids and growing it, but expanding your family through adoption? Yes. I think that after we had one or two kids, we just were in that phase of life of saying, what do we want our lives to look like? And we would kind of volunteer here and there on the weekends places. And it just always felt like it was falling short to me of like, I don't want to just see and help people occasionally. Like I really want to bring them into our lives all the time. But I also still want to raise my kids where they play sports and do things. And I know everything would just compete with, you know, helping someone else yet pouring into your own family. So it just really struck me as maybe we need to adopt. We started to pray about it for probably, um, I don't know, six months at that point. And I had an early miscarriage after our second child. And it really just got my attention of like, okay, what would ever make me choose adoption instead of just having biological children? And um, Andy, you were on your own path. Maybe you can interrupt there of we were both just kind of on separate paths praying and asking Mm. the Lord and it looked very differently but we knew ultimately we had the community and family and resources around us so it felt like we wouldn't be going at it alone and what was you know your path Andy yeah we were on two different planets in regard to the topic of adoption I was on a planet that was called career (laughs) 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 and so I had been uh, in education as a teacher for a handful of years and had always wanted to go back and get a law degree. I was wanting to do work that was justice oriented. Mm. I was pondering all the, the great and grand plans that I could for how I would you know, be part of God's work and continuing to transform the, this planet and all these great noble ideas. I'm sure we've all had these ideal dreams. Somewhere along the line, Martha kind of said, well, gosh, Andy, you know, what if it weren't about a career? What if, what if justice were about our family? And I was like, I kind of was mad, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Uh it's like good of a point. One, why didn't I think of it? But two, I've got, I got to pray on that. I've got to really dig in and and look at it. And I just found then, and and I find honestly again and again, that I'm quick to see an application of what God might be doing in my heart. And I get fixated on the application, whether it's career or a new strategy at work or a project at the house. But I rarely stop and say, what's really internal here? What's God doing at a hard level? And then it probably has multiple applications. And in that particular case, that longing for justice, that desire to see lives transformed, that 
became, as Martha said, something that we could be a part of a, as a family, missionally, but also as a family, just another family, having children in like, like any other kid in our home to, to love them well. So it, it matched up with what we could do and what we could give and what we felt we had a foundation to be. It just started making sense, and God, God spoke through that. So how old were your two children at that time when you started talking about adoption, and were they part of the conversation? They were really little at that point. They were probably three and one, so no, at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were clueless to the whole experience. And this is not as common in terms of having adoptive kids be pretty much around the same age or overlapping, you know, with your biological kids. Often we, people who have both biological kids and adoptive kids, the biological kids are older. So I'm wondering what that experience has been like for your family, kind of having a mix of ages all together. You know, it's been really amazing to watch and really painful at the same time. You know, we watched two of our biological children, just their hearts were so for it. And um, as the the set of five that we adopted five years ago, our two biological children were really, um, one of them in particular was just swimming in a pool one night and just said, I can't stop thinking about these five kids and mm. we just have to bring them into our home. You know, we had lots of talks about, you know, what there will be a cost to all of us and sacrifices. And, you know, at that point, kids are like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But they... They really, we could tell their hearts were open to it and ready. And then mm. once we brought children in, they were, um, you know, it's really interesting. So open for like a month or two. And then we kind of hit that wall of like, oh my goodness, this is real. And this is hard. And mm. these mm -hmm. kids don't know anything in their minds. You know, they're, they're really hard on them for a while. Just didn't have the grace and the understanding of how long these kids had been neglected. And once they experienced, you know, a few months of bringing the kids in, we noticed that they were experiencing their own kind of grief. And we didn't anticipate that of realizing that they had lost their original family um, and what it was. And I think it was about a year into it that our oldest child, I remember finding him, he was probably 13 at the time. He was a big, you know, almost getting to be teens. And he was weeping. Um, and I remember just holding him, which was a rare thing at that age, obviously. Mm. And he just said, I had no idea the cost at what, it, what we're doing. And I remember just letting him cry. And it was so painful to let him cry because I just hurt with him so much and, you know, mm -hmm. felt like we had made this choice and he didn't really have that same choice. But it hit me in that moment. I felt like God just almost said, you know, let him just grieve. And so I did. And the next day it was like, he woke up with just a completely different attitude of, okay, now I'm kind of on their team. I can actually help these kids versus mm. with them and compete with them. And we kind of watched that transition with each of our kids where they had to grieve and acknowledge what they lost first before they could oh. really love them. Yeah. And sometimes we don't realize you're focused on the grief of um, perhaps our new children who are coming in and to pay attention that like your biological kids were grieving too. And Martha, you and Andy adopted a sibling set of five. 
And that wasn't something you were looking for, right? I mean, you were looking maybe to adopt again, but you weren't looking to adopt five at once. (laughs) How did that come about? Like a lot of families who adopt, there's more than one adoption story. And oftentimes there's a failed adoption story. And so we did set out to adopt from Ethiopia and one child became two through really miraculous events where God just opened the door to just the right people and just the right amount of time for us to get in and get out of Ethiopia. And then after had those two come, where the family of four had a biological child again, we're at five, we actually set out to adopt from Haiti. Somewhere after we got a referral for a little girl, we got a phone call from our agency and they said, she's been picked up by her biological father and is going back to live at home. And there's things you've read and then there's things you feel and learn. And uh, the reality of losing that opportunity to adopt her, but knowing she was going with the father, hoping that that would be a great situation for her. Just so it was really impactful to think about what our role might be in helping to prevent children from from coming into care and needing to be adopted. So we had um, lots of, I guess, more than one adoption. And then we got to the point where the children who were nearby, the five children, were emailed to us from a friend. We, we learned about their need. We learned about a father who had since left the family and was actually outside of the country. There was a little bit of a criminal history, and so he couldn't remain in the country. And prior to that, there the parents' relationship had, had really struggled. And the mom had given birth to to her youngest and now our second youngest child. And she found she had cancer. Mm. And uh, a, a two-year fight with cancer followed, which ultimately she succumbed to. So when when she passed away, the churches that had been investing in the lives of our, our now our five kids, those churches said, well, we've got to rally to, to find adoptive families. Mm. And three wonderful families stepped forward. Um, we were not one of those. And so a plan was made. And it was about that time that we learned about, about the kids. And I've since, you know, after my years in education, have gotten into this space of child welfare um, as a job. So oddly enough, you know, career-wise, it actually came full circle. And now I am doing something related to child welfare. And, and so frequently I'll learn about needs and adoption. And we just get the word out. And every time I tried to press this need for these five children mm. out, kept coming back to me like, I don't, you don't even have yeah. to eat. <laughs> this one might be for you. Right. Wow, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we ultimately reached out to one of the churches that was kind of overseeing this process. I mean, it's pretty wild. The church was adoption agency-like, which is, is good and bad. It's good that they're so engaged. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's a space for them to be in. They don't have particular expertise in that, so they were leaning on different social workers and others to help them along in that. But um, I remember a particular night as we were praying through this and we just reached out to the church and said, hey, we think maybe we should be considered for this. Mm -hmm. We don't want to mess up plans, but we know you guys want to keep the five kids together. And we think God may be leading us to be that family. And the other families that come forward were not able to take all five. And so the sibling sets would not, they would not be able to stay together. Correct. And on top of that, one of the families had something flare up for them where they had another child with significant needs whose care had changed and they really were unable suddenly to take into mm. two of the five children. So now you've got really two families and you've got two kids who, who don't have a place to go. So 
you know, God, God foresaw that and mm-hmm. stepped into that situation at that time. But that was tough. I'm wondering how did you discern and just come to that confirmation that this is, okay, we're going to say yes. This is what God has for us. Yes. Well, I think for me, when I learned of the five kids, I'd heard about many families before and I always passed them along to Andy, but it definitely resonated And when I texted Andy, hey, would you consider these five? He didn't respond. And I thought, well, that's weird because I knew he would laugh and be like, are you kidding me? No way. I was was at a men's retreat, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then he came home from the retreat and I was like, did you get my text? And he was like, yes, that's weird. We really should talk about that. And that's when I knew Hmm. immediately, wait, what? He did not just reject this idea altogether that maybe God had already planted the seed for both of us. Um, and then we did start to pray about it and it was really the first time in my life. I'm like a hardcore sleeper. I sleep through the night, never thankfully had any issues. And I just started waking up in the night, literally feeling like God was speaking Hmm. to me and giving me like these numbers on the clock every night. It was like three, two, one, it was Hmm. five, four, three. I mean, it was just all these like numbers pointing toward go. And then Hmm. like one night I got this verse the numbers on the clock, I just felt like I was supposed to get up and open it to Galatians and mm. the numbers that were on the clock. And I did. And it was this really specific verse about in a few days, you will go out of town and you will come back and gather your children together and take them to the promised land. Wow. We were planning on going to Kentucky and I thought, oh my goodness, like we're about to go out of town. And And I just knew, I thought, oh my goodness, these kids are going to be placed with us. And at this point, Andy was Mm -hmm. not so sure and was like, Mm -hmm. wait, wait, wait. I don't know about that. I was more than not so sure. (laughs) I, uh, we were just sitting, sitting on the bed talking about this. I I grabbed the covers, I pulled them back and I climbed under the covers. I used to be a teacher, right? So this is a visual aid for my wife so she can see what's going on inside my head because I didn't have words for it. And I crawled to the foot of the bed under this comforter and I said, this is how I feel. Hmm. hide from this entire idea. And so it was a very, very uncomfortable calling. You know, right. and I'll say, and then I, and I'll stop with that particular story to say, but the thing is, it was so uncomfortable that we had such a sense of God's presence with us. It wasn't like it was peaceful. It was uncomfortable, but his presence right. was there. Hmm. That's really powerful. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org.
So how old were your children at home at the time that you were about to bring home the sibling set of five? And how old was the sibling set? What were all the ages? I think I think our oldest um, in the home 12. at that point was 12. I think the oldest that we were about to adopt was 17. Okay. So we did, we did fiddle with that birth order. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd already, in that first adoption, we didn't actually mess up birth order in the first adoption, but we absolutely did in the second. I'm wondering if you could talk about um, how you've experienced maybe God coming through in your family. I think when you decide to bring in five kids at that point, you realize, okay, this is so much bigger than us. And, you know, we've just watched our community step in in ways that blew our minds. I remember even the first week of our decision, someone like called and said, you know, if you'll just meet us over at a certain street, we bought a 12-passenger van oh. for you. And all you have to do is sign the paperwork. That is amazing. It was just like, whoa, because there were all these big items and things in our lives that were, you know, obstacles to overcome. Like, well, how do we do this? And how do we do that? And we ended up having to renovate our house on two different floors to make room for everybody and had dear friends who were decorators just come in and every day for, you know, probably... 60 days just making decisions and doing whatever they could. And then just the biggest challenge we have is feeding our family. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> just nonstop. Yeah. You hope it will end and every day you've yeah. got to feed them again. Right. And um, we've just had so many people. We had a, a meal team, I think of 12 families for literally five years. They have brought us a meal once a That's month. Beautiful. Oh my goodness. And we've this year in the last year, it sort of tapered off to twice a week. But um, I mean, it's just their faithfulness that you always think, oh, are they going to burn out or who's going to be with us five years from now? And um, we've just really watched a lot of people even tell us verbally, like we're in this with you for the long haul. And I can remember, actually, you were one of the very few people who were willing to take the youngest too. They were like two years old. And that was obviously the hardest those were the two that we really needed the biggest break from. And you were taken, I think it was like every Friday. And I thought, and you would text me saying, I'll take them out for pizza. I'll keep them longer. I'm like, oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, and you didn't know, but it blessed me so much because kind of, I've always had this openness to adoption, but wasn't sure. And I think just God gave me a love for the two youngest ones that I was like, oh, I could totally love a children that's not biologically mine. Like, just like I love my biological kids, you know, like it kind of gave me a little bit of a taste for that. So it was a huge blessing for me too. It's, it's so beautiful to just hear how the church and your community came around you guys. And that isn't really the case for every family, you know? And so are there words of advice or encouragement that you would give to families that really don't have that? Maybe their churches aren't really, you know, aware or walking alongside in the same way. I mean, how can people find that kind of support and encouragement? Well, there are organizations that guide churches to do that work mm. now. That's that's the space that going back to the funny conversation about career and us adopting rather than me changing jobs, you know, I did ultimately change jobs and I lead an organization now, Promise 686. And when the name comes from a verse, it's a Psalm 68.6. God sets the lonely in families 
So our vision is basically the verse. How do we live out this promise to set the lonely in families, and how do we specifically engage churches to do that work? They just need guidance. They just need a plan. The whole space of child welfare is very overwhelming, and pastors and, and lay leaders, they want to engage in that work, but they they don't know where to begin, and they certainly don't know where to sustain that. So uh, our organization does that work. We do it around Georgia. We do it with some, some larger churches around the country, and then we do it through nonprofit partners in 20 other states. So we invest in them, and they in turn equip their local churches. So there's a network that, that we help um, to, to lead that's right at 650 churches and it's, it's growing quickly. So I think maybe the, the best response to your question is that churches are figuring this out. And what, what they're basically getting is that they can have what we call a family advocacy ministry, a FAM. And a FAM can, can do three basic things. It can help prevent kids from coming into the foster care system. It can intervene when kids do go into the system. Or it can connect children to families forever. And, and those three strategies have all sorts of applications. There's all sorts of programs, some things that, that our organization has developed, but there's things that organizations around the country that they've developed can be put into that framework of a FAM, and suddenly the church does become the support. It does become the, the scaffolding of the families and the community, because that's what families need the church to do. And that, that's, what, that's what we've benefited so much from. We never went into this work alone. I mean, from the go, we knew that we weren't going to be alone in it. And you can throw money at a problem, and, and that's important. Um, you can give adoption grants. That's something that we do at Promise. You can you can throw information at a problem. Man, with enough education, gosh, couldn't we couldn't we know more about the needs of children? Yes, education is great, but ultimately you got to throw people, and people need people to stay the course. And that's that's what we've had. We've had a, a team, a care community. We've had folks who just stayed with us because the trauma our children experience as kids, it played out again and again. You know, it's, it doesn't disappear. It actually has to bubble up to be felt again in order to be addressed. Mm-hmm. God's, God's equipped us to address it. It hasn't, doesn't mean it hasn't overwhelmed us, but mm-hmm. we could focus on the needs of our children, especially those who came from more traumatic backgrounds because family advocacy ministries, churches stepped in, and took care of the other stuff. They took care of the food. They took care of some babies. And they took care of some transportation. So it gave us really the bandwidth to do what was most important relationally. In full disclosure, I'm on the board of Promise 686. I, it's an organization I feel very passionately about because this model that Andy just explained in, in sort of working through the vehicle of the church is I feel like it's biblical. You know, the church is called, we're all called to care for the vulnerable and vulnerable children. And the community of the church is already in place that can wrap around and support those who are fostering and adopting. And just kind of like what Martha and I talked about earlier, like coming around these families, it it does transform not only that family, but the whole community. And that it's sort of Almost like the church, because you love this family, because you love this foster family or adoptive family and you know them and you're in relationship with them already and you want to come around and support them, then I feel like you're 
people's eyes are more open and they can catch a vision for the gospel call and mandate and what it means to love and care for the vulnerable children. And so I think it is a model that works. I love that there's the prevention piece, helping those who are fostering and adopting, going the distance. And one of the things I think an outcome of this is those that are fostering, like the statistics aren't great for them to stay in fostering because it's so hard, you know, and then those who have like the family advocacy ministry, like those who have a care community around them and are giving them support, they tend to foster for a lot longer. And you could probably speak to the numbers on this, Andy. You know, nationally, just over half of foster families quit within a year. I was talking to a friend out in California where we were privileged to help serve through a great nonprofit organization out that way. And he was talking about their county that over 50% specifically in that county will, will quit a year one. But then 50% of those who are left will quit in year two. So you've constantly, you're saying, oh, more families need to come. More, we need more, 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 more families. In the families you're bringing in, they're, they're not becoming veterans. Very few of those students are sticking around to deal with the children who've dealt with the hardest things. So you have inexperienced families who are gaining experience stepping away from the system and no longer available to help kids. And so when you have a team rally around that family, uh, the outcome is that year one, about 90% of families continue with it. So when the church steps, suddenly you're building the base of families, and that makes all the difference to kids. Those are like very striking mm-hmm. statistics that 90% of those that have the support and through the, through this kind of, through the church can go the long haul, you know, and what a difference that makes. And even just to hear of that support for adoptive families as well. So often you kind of need people to check in on you and are you okay? Now you're raising teenagers. You know, there's often there's a lot of support on the front side, but, you know, when it gets really challenging is you know, in the teenage years and... Or um, when the trauma, like, is... Resurfaces. Yeah, resurfaces in different ages of development mm-hmm. in your children. And I'd, I'd love to just talk with you about your experience just in dealing with kids who have gone through trauma, adoption, no matter, like, how ideal the adoption is, there's always trauma involved to some degree because they've had to leave their birth parent for some reason. And so I am wondering, how do we prepare for that as parents? And then kind of what you've learned along the way? Yeah, I think we were, we sort of jumped into it thinking, okay, we've read all these books. And, you know, you think trauma is real, but you don't get it until you're in it. And I think um, it took us just a while to you know, you have these great hopes of, well, love will cover everything. And once these kids feel loved, then, you know, they'll just soar and be able to overcome all their pain. And then you realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, trauma is trauma. It's built into their bones and their minds and their hearts. And it's something that they will carry with them. And I think as we went, we, we kept lowering our expectations, realizing they were just so high at the beginning. And um, we just kept lowering them and lowering them and thinking, we really need to get to the point where we don't mm-hmm. expect anything. Like, we just need to love them for who they are, not what they do and what they say and how they perform. And 
it was a very stripping process, I think, for Andy and I to realize, oh gosh, you know, we, we just, it was just humbling, really. Mm-hmm. And you may not know that you had expectations until they weren't, they weren't met. And, yes. and then just embracing your child where they're at. Yes. And loving them where they're at. And trying to understand it. Like we, there were just so many times we thought we kind of had a pulse on where everyone was and different stories would pop up. Like our oldest daughter, she was really struggling with asking for help that that just didn't come natural to her. And she tried to do it on her own. Just, she was a survivor and she saw this ad for Auburn university on the TV and it says, you know, call if you need any help. Well, she took that to mean as any help. She wasn't applying to Auburn university. She just needed help with her. And she, (laughs) and she came and told us, I called this number. I saw it on TV and, you know, it's just that reality of, Oh wow. Like their minds are working completely differently than my mind. And we had another son who had never really been to like a sandwich shop. He'd really only ever eaten at fast food and he just wouldn't even read the menu. It was too overwhelming. It was just like, it was a different language to him. And he would just copy whatever someone ordered before him. And years later, you know, he's like, I want that chicken salad that you've given me before. And where do I go? And, you know, tell him what to do. And he gets there and he comes home and he's like, oh, I didn't get what I wanted. I got salad with chicken on it, but I wanted chicken salad. You know, he's like, I said, well, you know, did you ask him? No. And he was like, I'm just not going to do that again. I don't like doing things like that. It's too hard. And just realizing that with trauma, sometimes children's brains don't want to, you know, forge the new connections and force themselves to think. And we have to like help them connect these dots. And I think we just didn't realize that that would be happening throughout life. It wasn't like just the first three months when you bring kids home and helping them navigate. So they feel confident in, you know, ordering from a restaurant or something as small as that. A lot of times I see it like building a skyscraper and from year to year, year one up to year two into year three of our lives is it's the first floor, the second floor, the third floor, you know, on, on up from there. So uh, maybe to say, say it a little slightly differently, let's say third grade is like the 30th floor up to the 40th floor. And you're going to build that in that time frame. And we brought in children, for instance, who were coming into seventh grade. And if you started looking at the skyscraper of their education, they were missing most of second, most of third, most of fourth, most of fifth grade. The, the educational system says, okay, it's time for seventh grade. So we're going to start building floors 70, 71, 72, 73. By the end of the year, in theory, we're going to build up to up to 80. And yet they don't have anything below it. I mean, that that's impossible. An engineer would be like, no way, never. And so understanding that, um, understanding that we shouldn't expect the 75th floor to be complete um, because, goodness, we're actually going to allow that child to outright fail that element of that part of science or whatever it is, because we've got to go back and work on the 22nd floor. And so the more that we've kind of sort of tuned into our, our wrong expectations, we've been able to say, okay, well, what now do we actually need to do now that we're not caught up and distracted by something that's not, not feasible mm-hmm. at yeah, this point? That's a great analogy. That is. And Christ is really asking us to 
enter into their suffering and really learn to develop empathy for our kids. I mean, he wants us to mourn with them. And I mean, we have to really understand some of their pain and we can only understand it to a certain extent. But a lot of change is required. I I think I've seen that in our family of the way that we parent The tools that we used before probably aren't going to work. What are some ways that have helped in that area? You know, just where we can kind of enter into their pain. Yeah, I think emotionally we have realized you, you almost at the beginning get offended by their behaviors. And, you know, you started with such a heart of compassion. And then you have to ask yourself, why am I offended? I think there's some quote out there about see if you can be unoffendable. And I think that's something I try to live by of like nothing that they're doing is meant to make me angry or hurt me or anything. I can just be a conduit of love for them and Mm. support. I can still give consequences and structure and things like that. But I think just being emotionally available, one of our daughters, she's more of an introvert and doesn't love to talk about her feelings and she's like I mean my parents just didn't do this like when we had a problem we just brush it under the rug and we move on and you could tell she was really liking it but it was really uncomfortable for her but I think you know as we've seen over time with her of just kind of drawing her out and just being a safe place has really been something we've had to work on but we've seen a lot of fruit from it of allowing our kids to express themselves, even though it looks really messy and probably not something I would have ever thought I would allow, you know, not the shoulds of you need to act like this and all that. It just looks really messy. And I think they feel heard. And I think that's the harder part for us is to slow down and let them feel heard. Children, vulnerable children, people who are in a place of survival don't have the opportunity to do a lot of self-reflection and self-analysis. And that's really an opportunity for someone, a blessing for someone who has stability and is thinking and is like leaning towards flourishing. And so there are things that we would invite our children when they came in as teenagers into our home, we're getting to know them where we're wanting them to see things in themselves. And this is a totally unlearned skill. I think about with one of mine, Sitting across from her, we had a funky little schedule where I would I would drive her to school, and just by virtue of the way the timings worked between dropping off other kids, we would get to hang out three days a week at this McDonald's, and she'd always order the same thing, and I'm like, this is so cool, I'm going to get to know this daughter. And somewhere along the line, I thought, well, I'm going to we're going to start evaluating life when there's nothing to talk about, because a lot of times there weren't. We're going to evaluate life from a sort of a, a physical, an academic, a social, and a spiritual lens. Maybe I used emotional, I can't remember. But basically these categories. And then I'd say, hey, give me sort of scale of 1 to 10. How are you doing emotionally? And the, 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 the blank, blank look. Like, <laughs> what? You know, <laughs> you know I, this is not just something for um, you know, children who've gone through a whole lot, any of the kids who started in my home would probably look at me and be like, dad, are you kidding? I don't even want to do that. But particularly for this child, she didn't have the language yet or the opportunity of doing that analysis. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that just remember you don't know what you don't know. 
And that's the worst. It's, it's the worst when you don't know what you don't know. But expect to learn a lot and to feel a little bit stupid along the way. But when you do feel stupid, don't, as Martha said, don't take it so personally and, and just adjust. So that's probably would have helped me if I figured that one out a little bit sooner. Providing that safe environment where they feel secure sometimes is just like, that takes a while. <laughs> that takes longer than you think. How has it been in COVID? Because having all of your family all together all the time, I'm sure has presented some challenges. It has been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, you always hesitate when you say anything in association with COVID that's positive because of obviously realities that are out there and folks who are devastated. And uh, we've been blessed to be healthy. But looking at our family specifically in our sort of insulated bubble that we've been in, it has helped us to become a new family. Think about adoption is sort of these pairings of children. In our case, our, our children are representative of a Ethiopian origin of Roswell, Georgia, not too far up the road from us here, origin. And then we had biological kids. I always give our oldest a hard time. I was born up in Massachusetts. And then we got a couple of Atlantans in there. And so you've got family coming together, really families forming family and and being locked in a house together was tedious, but it was really, really good. I, I think we we saw a new side of what family could be as a result of it. Yeah. There are some gifts that are kind of unexpected that have come out of this time. And my husband and I can totally relate to that. We kind of actually got stuck in Florida with all 11 of us. It was um, spring break. It was, it was yeah, yeah, but spring, the spring break extended. <laughs> extended for seven weeks. <laughs> wow. But our son actually ended up having brain surgery while we were there. And the Lord really just set up side that time for us to connect and to have that many teenagers, and I know you guys can relate to this, without schedules or pressures from friends or, you know, just, it, it was literally just seven weeks of family time. One of our sons came home when he was 12, and so we missed all those early years, and I felt like the Lord gave us that time to kind of make up for all the movies that he didn't get to watch as a, you know, with our family and all these different things. So that's really beautiful. So how long were you guys kind of in quarantine together? Oh, that's a good question. I wrote this down the other day. It was 157 days before we started school again. We didn't necessarily, I'm not sure how many, 10 weeks of real quarantine. Um, but we had the same experience of sort of seeing it as like a catch-up time because they ended up getting so bored that they were forced to watch the movies that, you know, we love, they roll their eyes at. And we just got to do so many of those things that the last five that we adopted had missed. That It was really an incredible time that forced just new rhythms. Well, one of the things that we love to ask all of our guests is to ask where you've seen hope in your family stories and how can we then point others who are on the journey? Yeah, I would say, you know, as a parent, you always fear the big things and the big, you know, what if my kid gets a brain tumor or what if my child gets hurt or what if when we adopt then my biological kids get hurt or, you know, all these things that we worry and we fear and we just kind of wonder, will we recover? I think that in our family, we've experienced various traumas that have happened during this journey. But I think even some, if I look back, I think I would have said like 
oh, would we even survive? I don't think we would make it like, cause that would just be the worst thing in the world or any of those kind of thoughts. And then when we hit some of these rock bottom places, I think we just experience the presence of God, like no other, like literally to the point now I'm like, gosh, you really can go through any darkness and it still be okay. Mm. Some days I'm like, we're still okay. And not only are we okay, we're great. Like, and that just blows my mind. I just, the pain that we've experienced, I'm like, and our kids are okay. And we're going to be okay because God never leaves us. He doesn't leave our kids either. All of the ones biological and adopted. I feel like that message is just so crazy to me that, and I love being able to share, like, it's really okay. All the things you fear, you know, your biggest fears might happen to you and it's still okay. And it doesn't mean you're not supposed to adopt or you're not supposed to do all the things God calls us to do. Like he's just never going to leave us. That's so encouraging when you're in the midst of it and you don't have those words of hope spoken to you, you can feel like your world is crashing and there, you know, there is no hope it's over now. But just to remember that even though life is upside down, the bottom has fallen out, we can be okay because Christ is our foundation and he is with us in the suffering and in the pain and he's using it all the hard for his purpose. And just to have those little glimmers of hope in the midst of really painful, you know, moments is really what kind of keeps you alive. Andy, and you work with Promise, you see a lot of places where uh, people are, are struggling. So I wonder if you can share how you've been able to maintain hope and how you can bring hope into those places. Some days I do, I do struggle to hope. I think that for me, I am very interested in a ministry model that will scale and bring hope to people across the country through their local churches. And as I, I think about the scale of everything and efficiency and everything, I have to remember that even though we're in this digital age and exponential growth is more possible than ever before, our souls are the same size as they were 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. And so there's, I, I have to practice uh, soul care myself in order to expect to have hope when circumstances arise. And so um, I, I would say that the simplest answer is, is the, the Sunday school answer to that question. It, it's, it is time with the Lord, Lord hearing Him and then working from that um, in relationship with him through the, through the day. So that that's uh, that, nothing new on that front. Yeah, it's a timeless truth. And ultimately, God is doing this work. This work of orphan care and adoption is is God's work. And it's, you know, even with setbacks, it's not the end of the story. He is working in it, and he loves these children. So thank you so much. Um, we've loved having you on this podcast. And thank you for your work at Promise and what you're doing in, in the lives of your, your children. Thank you. Thanks, guys. We've got the power of the resurrection living within. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment and help us spread the word. Share about it on social media or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. 
Adopting Hope is a production of Christianity Today. It was produced by Mike Cosper, Joyce Dalrymple, and Sasha Parker. It was edited and mixed by Alex Carter. Our theme song, We've Got This Hope, was by Ellie Holcomb. We'll be back next week with another story. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.